On today's show, I'm going to be talking with ALX from Love Crushed Velvet. They have two new singles out, The Future and the just-released Saddened Eyes. We're going to talk about that, their uh, new EP. And I'm especially interested in the world of 360 virtual reality music videos. So I'm going to talk about that and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So tell me, what is the name of the new EP? Uh, well, it's an album, and it's called Souls and the Barren Heart. Okay, it is a full album. See, I'm always confused nowadays, since there's the, the mold has been broken. People drop tracks. Sometimes they're compiled into an EP. So it's good to hear that people are still doing full albums. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to... The, the music. I mean, we all know how much the music business has changed, and it seemed like just a couple of years ago, it, everything had switched back to almost the way things were like in the 1950s and the early 60s, where everything was really just about the single. And, um, you know, there's still, just as an artist, when you're writing during a particular period, it acquires, it just, it becomes a body of work because there's, there, there tends to be a certain energetic bubble around what you're writing during certain stretches and uh, you know that's not there's not necessarily uh, it doesn't start and end at the beginning of the calendar year per se it's just more about when you start the writing process for um, a new crop of songs and when you finish it and that's the energy that goes into that and with the mindset that you're in at the time is oh usually always different from what it was for the for the previous work you've done so it's um so i think it's just as an artist it makes sense to to still make albums it doesn't as from a commercial perspective it may not but you know we uh you know art over money if you can manage it i remember how fun it was to get an album and it was wrapped in plastic and you'd open it up you know, you, you would, you know, read the liner notes and if totally, it told, yeah, you, know, you could open it up and learn more about the band. You know, what's the equivalent of, of that now? Like, how do you put out liner notes nowadays? You know, you can do it. You can do it digitally, but there's really not a format that I'm aware of that really allows for that. So we so we are, we do always still I mean, the, the records are digital release, obviously, but we always do print some are some physical copy as well. Some of it we do it for media. Some of it we do it shows for for fans. And you know, and you could still go on some of the outlets, some of the few outlets that carry a bit of physical, to uh, to do that. But we we always do design album covers, like full. Well, like what we didn't do with this record, uh, what we've done with all our past records is we didn't print the lyrics, which is uh, you know part of me really wants to do it. A part of me, kind of the pragmatic side of me. Did not do it, which uh, I may come to regret later on. But we, you know, we still do the liner notes with, uh, with all the album credits and the studios and some of the stuff that you're you're, you're used to looking at. So that, it's that we don't ever want to let that go away. And I think whatever we do as far as in the future, as far as any album or EP releases, we're always going to have at least that uh, all of the proper credits. So people know what studios we recorded in, what musicians played on what songs, that kind of stuff. Because it's also, you know, that that's a part of respecting the process and also just making sure that all the people who contributed to it gets get there, get properly credited, which, of course, they deserve to be. 
Now you're a New York band, and some people describe your sound as like a throwback to glam rock. You also have modern influences, uh, especially in these videos. I see almost like a, a techno kind of feel to it. How do you describe your style? Well, you know, a lot of it, if you go back to the, my personal musical roots, I kind of, my influence, the years in which I was really influenced strongly musically, like kind of what I'd consider kind of my late teens, that was, um, that was an era where all these, as much as we talk now about being this multi-genre and, multi, and, and micro-genre world, um, the kind of, kind of my formative years were in this really interesting time in which you would hear punk, you'd hear new wave, you would hear glam, you would hear, um, you know, what later became classic rock. It wasn't classic rock at the time, it was contemporary rock at the time, all being played simultaneously on the radio. So I did, so some of the stuff I'd be listening to, it could be, uh, you know, it could be like Ziggy Stardust or um, their hero Zero Bowie. It could be the Sex Pistols. It could have been the Stooges. It's, uh, uh could have been the Beatles, you know? So all this, and I was, so I was never locked into a specific genre. And so just because of that, at the end of the day, we're all a manifestation of our roots. And that, that just grows and it evolves as we evolve musically and stylistically. But that always kind of stays with us. So I think for I think for Love Crushed Velvet, we're always going to be a mix of a bunch of different things that's, uh, you know, I, I'm too close to the process to really be able to say, hey, there's a specific LCV sound, although I really do think there is one. Um, that may be fanciful thinking on my part, but... Now, that's kind of what we aspire to. You know, a lot of there, there are certain bands which have a signature sound. And I think one of the things I'd like us to be associated with musically is having a pretty broad template stylistically to draw from, yet having a certain core when that, that just makes sense in the context of the music we've made in the past and the music we're currently making so that it sounds like we're broadening our range rather than shifting directions. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also to do a song called The Future, you know, really, really makes a statement that you're looking to the future. And I'm really interested in this process. You know, I've heard 360 VR virtual reality. Everyone's singing. What's the new thing in videos? You know, are people using those? What were they? Those Google goggles? What was it? Google Glass? Yeah, they had, yeah, Google Glass. Yeah, it was kind of. It wasn't really interactive and geared towards music. I don't know that. I don't know that Google Glass. So, so what's your really took yeah? On. So what's it evolved to now? And what was this 360 VR process you used? Well, so I'm so I've been interested in where VR could go now for probably the past four or five years. I've just found. So I've been. Uh, so I, I'm also very into contemporary art, and I've been to some some really great interactive exhibits where um, this goes back probably some of the early ones, four or five years ago where visual artists were doing some really interesting things with a virtual reality, but it was in, it was basically in gallery spaces and small museums and things like that, where you'd have these headsets on and they did some fantastic things with it. And I remember the, you know, the first couple of times I saw this, I said, you know, this would be a great thing to pair with music. 
And it's not that it wasn't being paired with music at the time, but it was being paired with music in the same way that film is paired with music. You've got the visuals, you've got the visuals, you've got the the whole storyline. And then somebody will score the music based on that. And I wanted to flip this whole thing around and do it in the context of music videos, like the beginning, like the early days of MTV, where the video was about built around the song, not vice versa. And at that point, nobody was doing it. And I'm sure people were thinking of it, but I'd, I hadn't come across any examples of, of that being done. And so um, I had another musician friend of mine who was also as kind of a side project, coincidentally, working with some digital artists in that space, not combining it with music, but just doing it more in the gaming sphere, et cetera. So, um, so he and I were chatting and we said, hey, let's... Um, this to me smelled like early MTV. We said, let's let's be pioneers here, and let's really create and create a whole new way of experiencing music and pairing it with VR. And so it's like, first of all, it was, it was not back then. It was hard finding somebody who could even do this. There were some great digital designers doing some fantastic things out there, but they weren't really. That for you know, for whatever reason, just just never dawned on anybody to make a music video and in, in, in this format. So it doesn't um, like to me. It seemed like an obvious like an obvious idea, and there was nothing you know, revolutionary or groundbreaking about it. But for whatever reason, but nobody else thought was thinking this. But uh, so it was. Um, but a lot, a, lot of, a lot of the artists that we talked to were interested in doing it. They just weren't quite sure how. So that's how we came across Alice Ekdal and over over in Sweden, who was um, who was down for doing it. So so you to really experience it fully, you can you have to have like one of the Oculus or other similar type of virtual reality headsets on to be wearing. And then it's uh, and the goal was really to make the whole exceed the sum of the parts to make the video, to pair the video, to edit the, to edit it, to create the visuals in a way that just takes takes this whole experience to a whole other level. And like so if if you watch the future video on one of these on one of these headsets, you know, you take off your headset and you're just, you know, you need to you need to take a break because it's super intense. And which which it was intended to be. The now the 360 side of the experience is also cool, but it's it's kind of um, you know, it's a really watered down version of that. So if you want to do the 360 experience, you just hit it, um, you just watch it basically on your phone in the YouTube app and you move your phone around. And it is still super cool. Like whenever I show it to people, they're all like, um, really, they're, everybody's like, wow, this is great. But you compare that to what it's like with a, with a real VR headset on and they're just, it's just completely different levels. Mm-hmm. Now, for people who do have a VR headset, how do you watch that on YouTube? Is it something where you just plug that into your computer or your phone? Does, does there need to be anything special to do that? Yeah, so it's – no, all you do is look at it in your headset. And uh, so what you do is you, when, you put, when you put the headset on, they're usually connected to the Internet via Wi-Fi. So you just in your in your search engine when you have the headset on, you just go into the YouTube app. YouTube's got a YouTube VR app 
there you just open that up you type in love crush velvet and um and we've got three of these videos the first one we released a little over a year ago and the uh as kind of a, just to test the waters with it and uh you can watch them through that and you you, you click play and then all of a sudden you're in this totally i mean it's like it landed on another planet it's really very very cool well, when I look at that technology and also your video to the future, it almost seems like what people back in the 60s when they wanted to make a, an hallucinogenic experience. Like, remember the, the stage shows when they would take the slides and they'd put the colored liquid on and project it and you'd see the dripping, swirling, you know, colors and in, in the, the backdrop projected you know, Jefferson Airplane and whatever was going on back then. It just seems like those bands would just have loved this. Like, this is the full realization of just going full-on trippy. Oh, yeah, completely. But the, uh, the nice thing about this is, uh, you know, you, you can... <laughs> You can just be having a sip of tea and it'll still mess with your head. So it doesn't, uh, yeah, you don't need any, you don't need any external enhancements because you're, uh, you know, when you've got the headset on, it's completely immersive. I don't, you know, I don't, you know, I, I'm not even sure that I'd want something slipped into my drink when I was, if I was watching this on a headset. <laughs> well, see, this is like something you could go to Burning Man and like have just the whole audience wear your VR goggles and, and trip out. Yeah, completely. You know, and and, and uh, yeah, I've, I'd only been the Burning Man once, but it's for me. When you get there, it was it's almost um, you know, obviously not not everybody's doing drugs at Burning Man, um, but there's there's clearly a fair amount of it there. But when you're there, uh, yeah, certainly for the first time, it's the the whole setting is just so otherworldly. Anyway, like it didn't like when I got there, it wasn't like I never had this inclination to drop a tab or something like that there was no it just the whole thing was just so cool in and of itself it's you know you could just with a little bit of imagination you can just go on your on your own tangents anyway but i guess as an artist i'm a bit of a dreamer and in my own world anyway half the time so it's uh i guess i didn't i didn't need to um i didn't need to find like additional enhancements to get out of my that of my nine to five ritual, you know. So, your favorite venues to play at? You know, it's that's not uh, venues are. Um, it's not so much about the venues; it's more about. It's more about it, kind of every night is its own thing. And you can, you can play some venues that were just amazing one night and the next time you play, this is kind of okay. So it's, you know, I, I don't really think of it in that, like when I think of venues, a lot of times it's more about just places that are well run where you've got a good sound system where they're just, because, because when you're playing, there's a lot, when you're putting on a performance, there's a lot of, um, a lot of I's that need to be dotted, a lot of T's that need to be crossed. And there's just a lot of technical aspects to a good show as well. You, know, you got good sounds, good, my good, good monitors, et cetera. So it's more, you know, a lot of times when I think about venues, I think about more of it in that context. And after the fact, it becomes about, um, hey, you know, the energy of the crowd was really good that particular night. The band was really 
had just a great chemistry that particular night. So I don't, I don't really necessarily think of it in the context of special, particular venues because I've had just amazing shows. I'm really amazing shows in terms of just the experience of playing and some venues that you know, I didn't think one wouldn't necessarily think that highly of as a venue in and of itself and played some really nice venues where it kind of felt vanilla afterwards. So it's, it's I think, a bit more after-the-fact experientially, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like audiences at music festivals nowadays are really motivated. Like they they travel far to get there. A lot of times they're spending the night in the area and they're making it, you know, this once in a lifetime event experience. Yeah, I mean, festivals are they're, they're certainly a thing. And it obviously depends on where you're playing. You know, if you're I'm sure if you're headlining Glastonbury, um, there is that's. Yeah, that's that's going to be a pretty dope experience. With, uh, I mean, the stuff that we've done, it's all been kind of smaller festivals. I mean, I don't, I've played in the festival context in front of a few thousand people, but I haven't. We've I've never been lucky enough yet to play in front of tens of thousands of people yet. Well, it's so interesting how they program a festival nowadays. Some are very themed, but some are very eclectic. Like, are you ever surprised when you're booked into a, a venue or an event that has multiple bands and you think, wow, these other bands are way different than us? You know, how is the audience going to respond? Because it's really tough, I think, to program all these different styles to one audience. Yeah, 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 for sure. There's there's no doubt about it. It's, and, you know, if it's well, so if you've got a multi-day festival, the, the organizers and some of the better ones, they'll they'll try to create a certain fluidity around it. But um, you know, at the same time, you know, you don't want to have Lana Del Rey following Guns N' Roses and then have Drake coming on afterwards, and then then the Stones are next or something like that. You know, it does. It's nice if there's some rhyme or reason to it, but you know, some some programmers do a better job about that than others. It's more about um, but there, but yeah, you, I always do appreciate it when this is thought of kind of in a mindful way that 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 creates a real flow around um, around the programming. It's 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 certainly with a festival. Generally speaking, it's different than if you're doing a series of shows in a club one night where you might have four bands playing as opposed to a festival where it starts at noon and it ends up mid at midnight, and you might have you know, nine, ten bands on one particular stage over the course of a given night. So it does, but it, it's, you know, the, the, it's always better if there, if some thought goes into this for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also a way of gaining new fans because a lot of times, you know, people, they say, wow, you know, if you like this band, you'll like Love Crushed Velvet. And have, are you finding that people are getting your references, like the bands that influenced you? You're talking about the Stooges and, you know, punk bands and, you know, whatnot. Are you finding that's a good starting point? Like when people hear you, it brings back the memories of some of these classic bands that influenced you. Well, one of, one of the things about Love Crushed Velvet, which I think is... Um, <sighs> which I think is helpful in these contexts is that there is a pretty broad crossover appeal. So it's rock, but it's not, um, I don't think it's so, it's so, it's so, 
it's such a micro genre that only a sliver of a potential living listening audience is gonna is gonna understand it. I mean, at the core of it, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of a pop songwriter in a lot of ways in terms of how I think of that. I think of music in terms of hooks and listenability, et cetera. So, you know, if you're going to, there aren't that many, there aren't that many genres that are a complete disconnect with respect from an, from an audience perspective. I mean, if you've got, a, if you've got, if you're playing a thrash festival, we're not going to be a fit. Um, if you're playing uh, I don't know. We're, we're certainly not going to play a classical pops festival or something like that. But anything, any, anything that's got some semblance of pop sensibility to it, we we generally fit into that pretty well. You know, you come out of, you know, I like to think that if you go to a Love Crushed Velvet song show, rather, you're going to come out of that with a few hooks in your head to be able to sing along. Uh, to sing sing along to a particular melody during the to a particular song during the show, driving home with uh, you know, singing bye bye baby baby bye bye or something like that after you know afterwards. So we uh, so I think it's that general appeal to pop sensibility while not giving into the cliches of pop music that give us a broad appeal, but that yet still allow us to retain our artistic integrity. Hmm. And also, besides just the love of certain styles of music, like let's take the glam rock, for example, the look of it and just the performing styles. And it just seems like, you know, if you're drawn to that and you're promoting yourself as being glam rock influenced, there's that promise of a certain kind of showmanship. And you as the lead singer, does that give you like license to, you know, maybe strut a little more on stage and just have that glam rock fun with it yeah i mean ultimately i was you know with a lot of bands these days there's a um there's almost an understated performance quality uh aspect of the performance aspect in some of the in some of the front persons and i know you know and i grew up kind of in the era of the rock star where you know you command the stage, you have presence, you uh, you just you put it all out there. So that's that's always been. I mean, I started out in playing punk bands as a punk singer, and you know you don't um, you don't play in a punk rock band and be proper and demure. You know, it's just it's not. Uh, and all of the all of the singers that I that I've always been influenced by, they're they're all performers at heart. So there's I'm I'm kind of at a I'm not at a point in my life where I'm gonna be like Iggy was in his early days and roll around on broken shards of glass and you know I have to spend <laughs> half of my gigs in the emergency room afterwards getting cuts, bruises, stitches, and antibiotic injections. But um, you know, you still you know if, if I if I if I haven't if I'm not relatively drenched in sweat at the end of a show, then I've um, then I don't feel I've given of myself properly. See, I always appreciate it when a band gives their all, you know, when they're to perform, like you're saying, like if you're not exhausted at the end of a set, it's like, what were you doing up there? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, now, like when I play, it's like people, people afterwards, they want to talk and they want to hang out. And man, it's just like, you know, I just want to chill. Like, I don't want to be bugged before a show because you're just trying to get into the right headspace. And, um, 
And then afterwards, you're just like, hey, that was, you know, you got the, you still have some of the energy of the show, which is nice, but at the same time, it's, uh, I just want to chill out. So it's uh, like normally I'm like, a, I'm a quite a social person. Uh, when I'm performing, it's just like, you know, leave me alone, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Mick Jagger and the Stones are still touring. And you know what? At his age, he's still strutting. And it's just so nice to see someone to say that. It's not an age thing. You can be in your 70s or even 80s now. Yeah, I mean, that he's, uh, I mean, Mick is, Mick is pretty remarkable. Now, it's, you know, having, in all contextual fairness, you know, they've got, um, the, the Stones certainly have all the medical resources available to them. <laughs> I'm sure they're, uh, the, uh, when all the documentaries are going to be get, coming out years later, I'm sure these guys are hooked up to vitamin drips before and after the shows. <laughs> or at least, uh, yeah. uh, well, I, I would and, guess they are. But hey, you know, whatever it takes to make it happen. I mean, what they're, what they're, what, the, what those, you know, what that band is doing right now with their age as performers is just, it's just amazing. Well, it must be so much about pacing, like you're talking about. You don't want to be disturbed beforehand. You know, you want to rest up after. And it just seems like maybe in the early days, a lot of partying, a lot of touring. Maybe as you get old, you think, well, not so much partying. Maybe a lot more naps. Maybe we're going to space out the number of cities we do. Like, are you finding as you, you know, hit your stride, you're balancing your private life with your performing life? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of it is kind of at this point, at this age, it's more, it's very much about uh, just managing your energy in a way that, you know, when you're young, when you're, you're in your teens, in your early to mid twenties, your um, like your, your energy reservoir is almost infinite. You know, you can just go and go and go. And like you said, you, uh, you get, you party before the show, you sometimes party during the show, you party after the show, and you can do that almost night after night to a point. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I, I do that and I, I, I can do it here and there, but there's not, a lot of it is also, that's just not how, where I want to put my energy into at this point. You know, it's, it's really about trying to focus on putting on a good show, being, um, and being a professional about it, but in, in a um, just in the in the context of being respectful to the experience that I want to give the to the audience, being respectful to the music, to the musicians, to the investment that's got in that's gone into making the music, you know, so that you're putting all of what you can into it. And that's in, in, I was in Germany last week and just talking to a friend of mine who would um, who had flown over to go see the Stones play in Hyde Park. And, uh, you know, his comments about their performance was that, and we'd, and we'd all seen the stones and over the decades and they're kind of in their, um, in their various iterations, lifestyle wise and musically and the other stones early on they they were partiers. They were kind of, you kind of didn't know what you were getting on any individual night. From a, in terms of just from a musical cohesive perspective, and now these yeah, these guys they're all, you know, they understand they can't. Um, I, I don't know about Keith per se, but the rest of them aren't uh, having four bourbons and um, and two and then you, 
and a couple of lines before they get on stage, they're, you know, got to take care of themselves. And they, uh, you know, my friend's observation was now they're just playing for the joy of playing. And that really show that really, you see that in the live shows. And that's kind of where I'm trying to be at this and, and the people I'm playing with are trying to be at this point, just be, just take in and give back the joy of playing. Well, do you think when, you know, all the members of the Rolling Stones are gone and, you know, the last Beatles and, you know, the classic rock that a lot of people grew up with in the 60s, do you think that will be an end of an era? Can we ever really regain that same rock and roll spirit? Whatever comes back is going to be different because... One of the big differences between then and now is that music really drove the culture for a long period of time in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, maybe, say, during the early years of the 2000s. But it, it doesn't, it really doesn't now. Not to say that music isn't relevant and it isn't influential, but what you really don't have it's household names the way you once did. And they certainly didn't drive the culture. You didn't see people trying to look like bands on a widespread basis, emulating their, their hairstyles and their clothing around what the bands were wearing. Um, and I'm not just talking about teenagers. I'm talking about like even people in their early 20s, you know. So it's you don't have that now anywhere, anywhere near the way that you had it in the past. And... Because of the way, because I mean, now it's really technology driving culture. Everybody's after the latest app, and you look at and the new rock stars are, you know, the Elon Musks of the world. And it's, you look at all of the gossip, all the gossip magazine, the gossip pages in London and New York and everywhere. And it's all like, what's Elon Musk doing? You know, no, nobody gives a shit about what's, um, what any other, what any. The musicians are doing certainly not to the degree that that they once that they once did a generation ago two generations ago so that's so i think that that's in that sense whatever comes next is it's going to be different because they're operating in a very very different social ecosystem and i don't know if anybody's ever going to have that reach again that bands have had in the past i could be wrong you know that could you could you know, rock and roll's been written kind of been written off and had its uh, had had its um, recirculating obituaries coming around every few years for quite a while now. There, there could be just the kind of in the same way that you had this during the late 90s, you had this lull where it seemed like rock was really, really dead uh, or certainly not, not relevant. And then suddenly Guns N' Roses came along and they changed everything. Or so much came along in the early nineties and nineties, and that yeah, that mm. just changed everything. So there, there may be another rock band that comes, and that just uh, you know really, just really, from a musical perspective, just has their just has their pulse on kind of what that underlying spirit, societal angst of the times is, and just is able to capture that. And then that may so it may happen again. Mm -hmm. Well, when you think of the rebellious spirit of rock and roll. And, and how so much of that has been assimilated, you know, the style of rock. And, and when you think of people rebelling, is there 
as much to rebel against now, now that society loosened up since, you know, when the Stones and Beatles first came out. Yeah, no, I don't think there is. Well, there's, I think it's manifested itself very differently right now. You, um, there's not so much rebellion. I don't know that there's necessarily a spirit of rebellion per se, although there is, I think, a tremendous amount of political angst and tension and anger out there. So, you know, you see this on, and I think, you know, really, you see this equally on the left and on the right, where you've got, um, yeah, you've got you've got conservative people rebelling against you know what you consider woke excesses, and you've got uh, kind of liberal-minded people going against conservative excesses, and that, that's and there's a lot of that going on. But I don't know that there's a real common thread that is um, that's kind of the artistic unifier of channeling all that anger into or that angst or tension into something that everybody listens to, you know. Back in the day, you'd wait for the new David Bowie record to come out and say, oh, what is what has he transformed himself into now? What's the new look? What's the new style? And and that's so accelerated now with social media. It just seems like people so quickly go through these new innovations, but don't fully enjoy them as much because they're so quick. Well, they're so quick. And also, the other thing is there is just there is so much being thrown at everybody right now and there's this really just almost pathological obsession of on the part of um the uh content dispersers and that's and and i'm a content disperser dispenser you know and and you are as well you know we, we all are where we're just all kind of trying to figure out how do we get how do we put out there and get the and be able to get people to look at or listen to what we're doing and the accessibility of all these outlets of social media etc is, is kind of it set off this feeding frenzy that just makes it incredibly hard to uh, number one just to have to have broad to have broad exposure uh, but number two to have broad sustained exposure in the context of um, capturing people's attention spans for um, for any longer period of time. It's just hard, you know, you get um, and as an artist to be able to make to create work over a number of years that resonates with people, that people listen to, that people really dive into and peel the layers off of to really try to understand what, um, you know, kind of what's going on there. Um that they can connect to, create with whatever they're taking in, whether it's art, whether it's in music, film, you know that every that's that's harder now because it's everybody's taking it in quickly and then moving it on, moving on to the next thing, and I'm guilty of that as well. I mean, there's so much there's so much that I listen to that just deserves way more time than I than I give it. So I think as as creators, we can't begrudge people for not doing that themselves. Now, you're also a songwriter, and don't you think that there's certain eras, there's certain current styles, you know, those go in and out of vogue. But when you write a good song, that transcends all those surface things. So, like, for you as a songwriter, you know, in spite of what's going on in other people's, you know, current, you know, pop music moments, 
if you write a really good song, isn't that what it's all about? Ultimately, it is. You know, and the difference between I think there there are several. There really what I consider kind of two phases of that question. There's the song itself, and there's how the song is presented. Because mm-hmm. a good song, you can have. You can you can perform it in in ten different musical styles or genres, and it'll sound like something fresh and completely different each time you do it. But it's still the same underlying song. You can change the tempo, you can change the key, you can change some of the vocal phrasing. But if it's a good song, it'll and it's and it's well performed. You can do a country version of it. You can do a rock version of it. You can do, um, and uh, probably an electronica version of it. It's the same. You really you pick your genre, and if you're creative and, and if you're creative about it, you can you can do a lot with it. So it's, um, I think, ultimately what resonates is the performance and how it's presented. So there's an and from a production style, is it something that feels relevant and feels like today? Mm-hmm. And and back to the Stones again. You can write a song like I, I get no satisfaction. You know, going on around sixty years old or so, and, and still being played. You know, if there's a jukebox, you know, you can go to some little out of the way diner, you know, in Middle America, and still hear that played on an old jukebox in '45. Isn't there just something amazing about writing something that will outlive you? Yeah, well, that's, you know, to, to be, um, I think to have something that's got, that's got the staying power of something like Satisfaction, you know, that's, uh, there, there aren't that many songs out there that have that, that's something certainly, you know, if you can, if you can get one of those as a, as an artist, that, that in and of itself, I think is an accomplishment, and you look at the Stones, they've got, you know, they've, they've got a few of those, the Beatles certainly have plenty of them. Some of the great classic, classic rock acts have they've got a couple of those in kind of in their port in their in their feathers kind of some of you those feathers in their cap, and so that's um, that that would be an amazing thing yeah, to, for sure to be able to have to be able to have something that's so enduring that last that's that's multi generational that's um, that's one of the cool things about when you go to a Stones concert you have. What makes their music so amazing is that you'll have seventeen-year-olds, you know, have seventy-year-olds, and they're all just having a great time together. And um, it's this kind of, it's this great uniting force. And I think music at its best can be that. It's a really, it's a unifying force, a unifying energy. You know, a few years back, one of your songs had, had a very interesting distinction to it. Goodbye, Goldblatt was chosen to be on Rock Band Three. Yeah, that was kind of um, that was kind of a cool thing. It's um, they had um, I had uh, I, I had done some work on the uh, just some some studio work with one of the co-producers of uh, of that song. Ended up getting involved with doing some stuff in the gaming world, and then we we're at one point he's like. Um, Hey, you know this would this would really be really good for uh, for rock band, and that's um, yeah. I haven't really paid attention to how much it 
how much it got used, but it was kind of fun having it in there. It's, it's, it's you know, then you see, uh, and it, it was, I mean, at that time I was almost like, sorry, like some of the stuff we're doing in virtual reality with the format being relatively new and kind of seeing people doing, uh, <laughs> playing rock band to one of our songs. It was, it was fun, you know, it's, it's nice. It's always nice when you see something being done in your with your music that you'd never anticipated. And that's one, and that's kind of one of the cool things about putting what you've created out there into the world and just seeing what sticks and where people take it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing the reach of something like Rock Band or even, you know, Grand Theft Auto. You get a song on that and that all at once you're just exposed to a whole new generation. Oh, yeah, completely. And you have, um, and again, it gets it gets into this um, it gets into this whole whole thing of letting um, you, you know you just put a certain because yeah, every every everything that you release you're you're basically just kind of putting out a uh, packaged form of energy out into the world, um, and you put that out there, and then you just let yourself be surprised by where it sticks and who it resonates with, and the, and there, there's some stuff that I've that I've released where I was like, Hey, you know, I think this, I see really big things happening here where they didn't. And other times, you know, you put something out there where somebody will come back and say, um, Hey, you know, this is, this was, this, this came to me at a really transformative period in my life where it really spoke to me. And it's, um, and it really, uh, and it really gave me some meaning or gave me some comfort or gave me some inspiration or forced me to, um, I played a meaningful role in my life during this uh, during this brief stretch where I was uh, where I, you know, I was listening to the song or to this record, and then, you know the, it's those kind of things that I think as an artist they're they're really really just they're, this is very very rewarding. We hear about artists who have kids now, and their kids you know don't pay any attention to their music, but then they'll put one of their songs in like a Pixar animated movie. And suddenly, you know, their children, oh my goodness, now now we follow you. Now you're relevant to us because you're in this cartoon. Yeah, it's a funny thing how this all comes around. I have um so I've got a daughter who's now um who is uh who's also now uh, a singer, a songwriter, and she's 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 quite good. And I remember, I remember being young, well she was quite young rather. They um you know, the, the idea of doing anything with her father was like, you know, that's a kind of, uh, that goes to, that kind of goes in that same little compartment as the cooties, you know, and, and, but now, you know, she's, she's 20 and we play together. We write together. We always, we're always, whenever we have a new song, an idea, we're playing it to each other. And it's, it's turned into this really like beautiful multi-generational, thing that we've got going on so if you know ultimately if you have if you've got faith and confidence in what in what you're putting out there and in the um in the staying power of what you're putting out there it eventually comes around that can be a real challenge for a musician uh, to raise a family especially you know a touring musician you know was that a challenge for you yeah, yeah, it's hard because you have because anytime you're on the road, you're it's it's always whether that's I mean at at this point, 
particularly just with a lot of the COVID related complications that have come around touring. Yeah, we're just not doing that much. We're just doing very, very little of it. I mean, we're playing live, but it tends to be more one off type of shows versus in the past where I'd go on the road for extended stretches. And and those are hard because, you know, every, everything is, um, it has a zero sum aspect to it when you have a family. When it's, because what you're doing is you're, um, you've got a limited amount of time and you can't be in multiple places at the same time. So technology is helpful in terms of FaceTiming, calling, et cetera. You know, it's not like in 150 years ago when you, when you go on the road and you've got to deliver a letter through the Pony Express that might get there a few weeks later. And, you know, by the time, by the time whoever you're sending it to reads it, you've, done 50 other things since then so it's not even it's nothing is even remotely in real time so so technology is helpful in that regard it, it, it allows um you can get you can get more frequent touches in which is helpful whether it's in a romantic relationship with a, with um, trying to stay close to family and kids or parents or whatever it is but as far as facetime it, it's it's tough i mean you're you can't you can't be in two places at once. It's just as simple as that. So it's it's you're, you're really managing your time, your attention. Um, so my experience was always when you come back, when I come back from being on the road, that's um, and a lot of musicians are like this, or just even non-musicians, just people who travel a lot for their work. Whatever that might be, you you come home and that's kind of um, that's family time or friends time or loved ones time, however. You know, whatever the case may be. Well, do you think when your daughter became a professional musician, she had that moment where it was like, oh, now I know what my dad was going through all these years. Did that kind of give you an extra bond? Well, she's not at that point yet. She's not, she's, she's not, she hasn't hit the point of making a living at it. So now she's really more in that space of developing her craft. But, um, you know, from, but, but she's starting to st I do think she's starting to have a better sense and have a better understanding of a lot of the things that I was doing over the years and, and how that uh, and how that relates to some of the things that she may have to be doing. And so certainly a dozen years ago, social media wasn't, it existed, but it wasn't what it is today. It manifested itself very differently. Um, that was, you know, she kind of, started becoming musically cognizant when we were living in a world of MySpace and where Facebook, it was just kind of this thing that, uh, that was very much in its infancy, you know? So she's in a different ecosystem now. There's, there was no TikTok and all this back then. But uh, as far as what it takes to, to become a performer, that uh, some of the, the discipline that it takes, the um, the time commitments that it takes. She's not, I think she's getting a good understanding of that, and it's nice. You know, it is. Um, I'm glad I can be there for her to help guide mm -hmm. her through these things. And, and eventually, you know, we've all got to learn our own lessons anyway. But it certainly helps mm -hmm. to um, have someone who can sherpa you to whatever mm -hmm. degree possible through this stuff. Well, it's nice to have a guide. You know, it'd be hard to imagine going into music without having an experienced pro to at least just give you some good advice and maybe some cautionary advice. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's again, people are everybody's going to do what they want to do. You know, you did, you uh, you did your you kind of blazed your own path when you were young. I did. We we kind of all do, and that's kind of the stubbornness of youth, and that's one of the. Um, but there's that's also great in that it's. Um, it gives you know you have this youthful sense of certainty that oh that that's kind of like serves as your guiding light in a way that now that we're older, and we just understand more nuance with that, that we just understand that the world isn't black and white and there's nuance that has to be navigated. Uh, you know when you're young you don't you just you don't focus on stuff like that and that you don't pay attention to it you know you're cognizant of it, and but one of the great things about that is it just gives you this really singular focus that you don't always have when you're older but um you know i certainly like i'd never really had a mentor so that uh, had i had one that i probably would have changed would have made some better decisions that might have served me better as an artist back then so if i can if i can be that to anyone whether it's my daughter or someone else i'm, I'm certainly happy to give that aspect of that side of myself you know the one thing they people enough i think is that there's many different levels of success when you're young you look at your musical idol and think okay you're either going to be jim morrison or nothing you know it's just all or nothing and that the reality is just being a working musician is its own success and within that you decide what your version of success is uh, there's no doubt about it, and, and there's really a, um, you know, if 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 you're a true musician and a true creator, you're uh, you're a lifer, and you have to think of it in the context of, hey, this is just who I am, and I'm like, you know, I'm always going to be a musician. That doesn't that doesn't mean I'm only going to be a musician, but I'm always going to be a musician. And that is, yeah, and that looks very different when you're 18 versus you know, 20, 30 years later. That's, it's just you, you go through life, you see things differently. The things that inspire you are just totally different. That there's not this, um, you don't have this youthful angst and excessive overflow energy and just shit you're trying to work out from your childhood, which I think we all kind of, Probably never completely work out, but uh, but nonetheless, we 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 become more adept at at understanding some of how how some of those things affect us and influence our behaviors. And then, but um, you know, but ultimately, if you, if you're a creator, you're you're always going to be a creator as a musician, as a painter, as a as a writer. So you. Like for me, the measure of success right now is like you said, just being able to keep doing it, just being just happy that people are still listening to the music I write, enjoy it when I put something out. You know, I, I don't expect millions of people to listen to it, but if I can get tens of thousands of people to listen to it and like it and um, come to see me and come to see me play again and listen to my records more than once, that's um, and get some, find some meaning in it or something or find some way that that can touch a certain aspect of their lives in some capacity. You know, those are, those are the things that at this point I like, you know, mm -hmm. 
So those are the things mo- that drive me. It's just great musical chemistry. You know, just having some great players in the room where you have an open jam where we just love all being together and taking having the whole exceed the sum of the parts, which is what great music is anyway. You know, that's that's um those are the things I think as you get older, as you progress, they that that you really that you cherish that drive you in this in in this kind of lifelong vocation. Well, that is one of the nice things of being in a band, and it's maybe the arts that are invisible to the rest of the world, but it's the friendships and sometimes very long-term friendships and camaraderie you get that only a musician in a band, you know, can get with other musicians. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that, and but that all it also really varies from band to band. You know, when you see a lot of um, there's there's a lot of there, there there are lots of bands out there where they um, where outside of playing and rehearsing you know, they don't hang out with each other, and that's and and Love Crushed Velvet in a lot of ways is more in a lot of ways is more of a collective than a band itself because we've got we have got so many collaborators that kind of weave in and out of it. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, bring in for spe- for specific projects, and in some cases, there um, some of the players I'll take on the road repeatedly, others not, depending on what their commitments are. So there's this, there's a real fluidity and the kind of kind of the shapelessness around Love Crush Velvet. But the, you know, but I still all the people that I have played with and play with now, there 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 is kind of there there is a there is a friendship there, and when you have that musically. It's uh, there's there's an aspect to it that's very very different than what you would have in the context of conventional friendships because you're all communicating um, in your own language in the language of music when you're together and that's and sometimes that's you have that as as a unifying driver versus uh, and you can have people where you have these where you have musical friendships and synergies and a deep sense of connection yet still not feel terribly connected in the other parts of your life and you always want to love your audience and of course your fans but there's also this sense of us against them like oh here's the band and you know we're 99 sure they're going to love us tonight but (laughs) that one percent chance Oh my, are they going to turn on us? At least you feel that safety with your band of, I think, especially early on when, you know, you're paying your dues and playing dive bars. It's like, uh oh, are they going to throw stuff at us tonight? <laughs> at least we have each other. And if we need to, like, you know, grab our equipment and get in the van and get out of town real fast, at least we're together. Yeah, totally. There's, there's, there's very much, um, and the, the road will do that much more than than the studio will be in that sense because when you're on and that's why you know you really you've, you've really got you've you've got to choose your bandmates wisely because when because being on the road is is you're, you're in kind of you know you're you're in this marriage you know you've got um you've got roommates except you're not necessarily just in the same room you're all together not yeah, maybe not necessarily 24 7 but you're seeing an awful lot of these people that so just make sure make sure you like each other you might not have to love each other and, and anytime you're out for a few weeks or even a few months with the same group of people there's going to be you're going to have your moments where there are going to just be some disconnects and 
somebody's going to drive you crazy or you're going to be fed up with somebody's habit of leaving the remnants of their cheeseburger out on the tour on the on the communal table that's two square feet large you know that kind of thing so um that that's just part of it but, but at the same time there is you know you are you are kind of going to war with it with these uh with these people every night and because you're presenting like you said you're presenting yourself to uh to a lot of faces that have never seen you before and you just um you know, you're there to give you all. You're there to win them over. You're not going to win. You're not going to win a group of people over if you're not aligned yourselves. Mm -hmm. So, if you do have some tensions building up when you're on the road, does just going out on stage and playing help relieve a lot of that? Yeah, it can. Because ultimately, it, there's got to be um, the music's got to come first. There has to be a respect for the music. You've got to respect each other professionally. Um, you know, you don't uh, just you just don't fuck with your bandmates on stage. I mean, I've seen bands where that happens, where they where they where they bring their issues on stage, and it's it's just toxic and poisonous. It's horrible, and the whole and everybody suffers, including the audience. So it's yeah, but sometimes you uh, yeah, you can work that energy through, and if you and some and a lot of times if the, if there's tension, if if you're if you've got a bandmate that you're kind of um, yeah, that, that that's a bit um, that's kind of gotten under your skin for the past few days. But if they're really bringing it on stage in a particular night, you know that's um, all is forgiven. You know, clears the air. Well, you know, how, yeah, it how, does. It clears the air. You know, just don't piss on the punch bowl afterwards. But other than that, there's a, there there is there is a kind of catharsis after that. You know, you have if somebody really. Uh, if they're kind of if they've been driving you nuts and but they really bring it to the show, that's great. The bands of you know sixties, seventies, eighties that are regrouping and retouring because let's face it, you know they're going to get a payday. But in some of the cases, they have some unfinished business, some resentment, and it's interesting how um, you know earning a couple million dollars out on the road. It's a good motivator to clear up some of these uh, old grievances. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. They um, thickening <laughs> up, thick, thickening up one's wallets um, can lead a can uh, <laughs> can make forgive and forget a lot easier. And these are, oh, okay. you know, and, and when you see these bands doing that, you, you can't. It can't begrudge them for doing it, you know. You've got, and in some cases, the driver is economic. In some cases, it's about um, just recapturing the love of playing. In some cases, it's about wanting to get in, just wanting to be in front of people. There's all. It usually tends to be all of the above. What's but, interesting, uh, you know, well, when you hear of those, you know, legendary feuds, you know, even like. Oh, who like Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. But then when you do see like, you know, concert footage of them, they seem to really, you know, you can see why they have that connection and maybe things can be just hellish off stage, but you can't deny, you know, they respect each other musically. Yeah, for sure. And that's what, that's what makes those relationships really just very, very complicated because you kind of... Um... 
where where there's a where there's just a certain magic with respect to the connection that certain music that some that particular musicians have. I mean, that just doesn't grow on trees. Um, it's a very it's a very unique thing, and there's a, there's a certain wisdom that comes with appreciating that and being mindful of it. It's it's kind of like you know the um, you know you can have you can have some you can have a lover in your life where they just uh, they'll just drive you absolutely out of their mind, but you know the uh, you've got this physical chemistry with them that's just off the charts, and that's uh, that's. You know, and everybody recognizes that there's a, there's a same there's a there's some similarities to that musically on an artistic level, because you're um, again you've got you're communicating in this unspoken language just like sex and love is an unspoken language, it's a form of communication. Um, musical collaboration is a form of communication, and um, you know, people who people who really align when they speak that language, uh, you know, that that by no means is a guarantee that they're going to align in any other aspect of their life. But um, you got to be cognizant that, you know, when they get on stage together, when they get into the studio, whatever there is, there's just that magic. And it is, it's, you know, it's, and it's, it's got its own very powerful driving energy behind it. Do you think conflict and tension fuel great art? Or is that just an excuse that artists give to, excuse bad behavior i mean i like to think that it maybe it's self-serving but i like to think that it fuels it there's uh a lot of it depends on where you are in the creative process if you look at if you look at what i consider like nashville songwriters or like old school new york brill building songwriters where you have well, this is really just a professional craft. You just get in the room with another writer and you say, we're, we're coming up with something today. And it's about, um, the goal is to come up with a good, catchy song. The goal is not to come up with a form of artistic self-expression that, um, that allows you to get something off your chest. Those are very different driving dynamics, but but the um, and the, and look, they're both art. They're just they just come from a very very different place. So if you're if you're the, if you're a songwriter and you want and you just feel you have things you have to get out of you, those can be incredibly fruitful periods of your life from a creative perspective. Even though from from a personal experiential perspective, they suck. You know, breakups suck. The loss of somebody sucks. But if you if you channel that into um, into your creative work, you can come, you can you can end up creating some very very special things as a consequence of that. That hopefully there'll be people out there in the world that are going through similar things that'll uh, that'll latch onto that and that's going to resonate with them and they'll and they'll uh, it'll, it'll touch them in some way. Versus, you know, writing a cool jingle or something like that, that gets into people's heads, but the, in the context of they're humming it when they walk down the street, but it doesn't mean anything to them emotionally. What frame of mind have you been in when you've created your best work? Oh, yeah, you know, I've been in been doing this for a long time, so I've been a lot of I've been in a lot of frames of mind and. Uh, 
<laughs> some um, some better and healthier than others. <laughs> uh, you know, I would say I, I've gotten to a place right now as a, just as a writer where I still have a reservoir of experiences that out of that I haven't fully processed that I maybe haven't necessarily fully come to terms with. And I think that's true of all of us in our lives. You know, there's just, just certain periods, certain things we went through, certain relationships that have a multi-dimensionality to their, to their underlying dynamics that um, aren't really packaged in this neat little story where this, this is a clear linear beginning and an end. They, um, yeah, they, they kind of have this amorphous, shapeless existence that um, kind of shifts, you know, because you know how you can remember certain things um, two, three, four, five months apart, and you remember them, and you're, the, way, the way you relate to it is different each time, you know, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And as and, and just kind of as you get older, um, you just you reservoir of all these kind of experiences build. So I find now uh, I, I can just tap into this stuff, and a lot of times it's unconscious. It's if there's a lot of the, even to this day there's I, there are things I write. I don't I don't really completely understand what I'm writing about. It might be years later that I finally under that it finally dawns on me what this song is about. You know, some songs are very purposeful from the beginning. You know exactly what you're writing about. You know exactly what emotion you're trying to convey. But when you're doing it in kind of a stream of consciousness way where sometimes words, lyrics are just coming to you, you're trying to pierce them together and also make them have some semblance of sense musically and in terms of being singable. Uh, a lot of times it's just after the fact that I understand what this was about. So the um, so the press, so the whole process is very, uh, in some ways that makes writing easier because I can, there's so much I can draw from. At the same time, there's, um, I feel like I've just got this, still this endless, endless reservoir of, of musical energy that just hasn't, so that's, I've just only started to tap into. Mm-hmm. Do you songs quickly, or or do you have to live with it for a while and and let it brew for a bit? It it really varies. Some some of them come out really fast, quick, easy. Others, um, others brew for a while. I mean, some of them I'll have they'll sit there for a few years, and a lot of times lyrically, I'll um, yeah, the, the the musical side of things, the melodic side of things, a lot of that will come pretty quickly. But, but lyrically, a lot of times I'll still be refining these things, going through four, five, six, ten, twelve iterations of this, and letting it letting it all come together, kind of over months and months. So it, it really varies. There's not there's not one set answer for it. There's just so many different ways of writing songs. There's um, and also I just don't write on. Sometimes I write by myself. Sometimes I've got a whole group of different collaborators and, and even fresh collaborators that I bring into the picture. And a lot of times I'll just invite people over that I'll just have met who I who I like on a personal level, who, I, who, I, who are proficient at their instrument. I'll say, hey, you know, come on over. Let's have a glass of wine, you know, share a bite and um, pull out some instruments and see what happens. And 
more often than not, something a little interesting will come out of that. And that's and each person you collaborate with is going to be, is you know, you're, uh, you know, you're 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 combining the energy of you bring a different individual energy into the into the creative process, and what's going to come out of that is is naturally going to going to be different as well. So sometimes sometimes the song that comes out of it again is comes together super quickly other times you've planted the seed that you continue to nurture and refine you know over the course of weeks or months mm -hmm. so for the new album did you just decide hey i'm gonna write an album's worth of material or did songs just start coming to you and and at a certain point did you just say hey these demand a full album no, this was, uh, I was just in a particular period of writing. I, I mean, they were written over about the course of the year. I probably had 15 songs or so that were, uh, that I felt had a certain cohesiveness to it that we decided to use as, uh, I guess, the um, the potential candidates. And we distilled that to these final eight. Uh, so the funny thing is about this record, well, I mean, all this, this stuff was all done seven or eight years ago. And we just waited and waited and waited to release it. And because for whatever reason, it just did not, um, it didn't feel like the record, even though it was finished, it didn't feel, it never, never felt like the record was ready to be released. It almost seemed like the time was wrong. And there's, and the interesting thing about it now is it feels, at least to me, it feels so relevant, so contemporary that, um, it makes sense now in a way that it didn't make sense to me back then. It made sense to me musically then, but commercially it didn't make sense to me back then. Mm -hmm. And did you feel there was an overall theme to it or, or were you writing with a theme in mind? Well, there was a lot of angst between angst within the record. It's in a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of that angst is just about personal freedom, retention, uh, or just tension within relationships, um, challenges within society, tensions within society, and all this kind of meld, melded together in this, um, within, I guess, the sonic landscape that we tried to create for this particular record. And um, that was... Uh, but ultimately, it's a, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of tension within the music within within the um, within the album musically within the album lyrically. Even though they're kind of structurally all kind of pop songs, they're still kind of very dark, quasi angstish songs. You know, and it feels like we're kind of in that period today. Mm -hmm. And you well, look at where we are. You know, you've got a war going. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no problem. Uh, I have a few more questions, but before we wrap up, I want people to know where to find you online and especially go to your website, you know, which is like your liner notes. So where's the place where they can not only uh, listen to your new music, but also just, you know, read about you, learn more about you. So the the music, it's on all the major outlets digitally. So it's on... Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, um, and all and all the many others. So that's we've got this full digital distribution there. Um, so obviously, there's of course LoveCrushVelvet.com, the website. So there's, um, you know, I will say we've been horribly, um, hor horribly undisciplined in updating it. So I think in the next week or two, it'll be a lot more current in terms of content, etc. But um, you know, good good old Google. 
does a very nice job of um, just digging up everything that we've got there as well. And we've had, you know, like yourselves, we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of um, blogs and media outlets that have been very generous in giving us, uh, giving us some time, whether it's either in print or in um, interview format like this, and giving us an opportunity to, to talk about the music, to talk about the new record. So there's a bunch of those as well, and those we'll be putting those links on um, on the website too over the course of the next week or two. Mm -hmm. Well, it's always exciting to release something new, and and it's like always your newest, you know, you're most proud of. But but now that you know you're you're putting a spotlight on your whole career again, you know, with this new release, you know, what's some stuff leading up to it that you're really proud of still? I mean, if I look back at it, like every so often, I'll go back and I'll. Um, because I, I mean, I, I rarely ever listen to my own music, but I, um, but every, every so often I will go back and do it just as, you know, as a bit of um, a trip down memory lane. And in some, I don't know, I remember some months ago, I, uh, I don't know if it's Spotify or Pandora or just one of these sites where it's just uh, put in a Love Crush Velvet playlist, and basically they they played essentially everything and, and not in any particular order that um that's been put out as love crush velvet ever since 2010 and um and i was listening to it and then so i mean first of all there's a lot of songs in there that i'd forgotten about but um after i'd gone through this whatever hour and a half for hour and 45 minutes two hours whatever it was of listening to all this stuff it's um I kind of thought, hey, you know, there's. Um, I was really proud of the music. It's not. I'm not. Gonna, it's not going to say it's. I mean, there's a lot of great music out there, and I'm not going to. It's even attempt to try to categorize it as as to how it stacks up against other other stuff out there. But um, but relative to um, what I've created, I mean, I always feel that. And this is one one of the reasons I don't put out a lot of records is I make sure that. Whatever I put out is, um, I feel like it's the absolute best work that I'm capable of doing at this particular time. And I can, I, I can really say that everything, everything I've put out is Love Crush Velvet. I, I don't think I could have, I could not have done it better at at the time that I was doing it. So, um, and so that, you know, when you say leading up to it, that's, that's um, when I listen to the catalog and that's, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it in the sense that as an artist, I, I, I've always given it my best. And when when I go, when I put on a guitar, whether it's a, um, and get in front of an audience, whether it's alone or with other musicians or other other bandmates, it's you know I, I always I always feel that everything that I've put into this process up to now, I'm trying to give that back now, and that that I feel. Um, and once I stop doing that, that that's the time for me to take a break from this and to just um, question my own motives for doing it. Of all the songs you've written, do you have a favorite? No, no, no. They all, uh, they all, they all resonate differently at different times. Like off the new, off the new record, "Souls in the Barren Heart." Like I, like I love "Saddened Eyes" as a song. There's this, I find there's this, this real, there's this kind of simplicity to it to the song but um 
I feel has a real resonance to it. Others, uh, so from the Delusions EP, I really love, um, I really like Love or Leave the Lights On as a song because it's, it's just, um, it's such a, it combines so many genres. There's some ska, there's some reggae, there's, um, there's rock in there. There are really three, four different genres and that blend into this, into this specific song that, uh, that I really just like that as a song. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's rise up, which we did, which I had released back in 2007 on a, on a solo album that we've gone on to remix. That's a song I love performing live because it's just this kind of quasi blues influenced jam. That's just a lot of fun to play with. And it always takes on a, a different form whenever we swap out some different members of the band. So there's there, there are different there are different songs that I like for different reasons. But ultimately, I really, um, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm I, I just I I'm you know I'm I'm comfortable with uh, with my body of work, and I'm and I'm glad that because I write extensively. I'm, I've got um, con constantly con there's there's just orders of magnitude more songs I've written than what I'm what I've released and I'm, um, I'm glad I've chosen, um, what I feel is quality over quantity. And I always want, at, and, you know, at the end of the day, I always want Love Crush Velvet to be remembered for that, that, um, nobody can ever say, Hey, this was kind of a weak, crappy record. You know, Hey, they, they, I don't ever want anybody to say, Hey, you know, ALX and Love Crush Velvet phoned it in on this one. You know, they weren't into it. I just, they, you know, just, I don't want to put out any half-assed records ever. That'd be a great note to end on, but I but I do have one more question. <laughs> and I think when you have a body of work, that's something special. You know, beginning songwriters are excited to write one or two songs. But when you've had like a body of work over time, it's almost like a journal, you know, it's almost like in a way you are writing, you know, the story of your life or, or how you felt life. So I'm just really curious when you look back at this catalog, you know, do you think it, it tells a story? Oh, it totally does. Yeah. Because it's also, um, you know, it's, um, because the stuff I write about is a combination of what's going on in the world versus my personal experiences. And because of that, um, there it is a journal. Yeah, it's a journal about how I see, kind of how I see the world, how I'm experiencing things. You know, well, it's these are things. The moment of, it's a moment in time. All these things are a moment in time, going back from 2010 um, to now. And so that's yeah, it is. It is. You're kind of seeing the listener seeing these things through the um, through the eyes and ears and the heart of ALX. Excellent. Well, you've been listening to ALX of Love Crushed Velvet. The band has two current singles, Saddened Eyes and The Future, available in 360 VR in music video form. Really appreciate you sharing all this. And I, my hope is that for your next album, you don't wait quite so many years before you put it out. Well, um... The good news is the next album's ready. It's done. <laughs> uh, I like that. Is that like 2023 release? 
Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a 2023 release. It's done. Um, it's uh, I, I put COVID to very, very good use. We have um, I've got the it's it's done. It's um, and, I, and it's, it's quite good. I'm I'm, quite, I'm really really pleased with how it turned out. We've got um, there's probably the next two to three records. The bones, the the core bones of the songs are kind of in place and ready to go. So there's a, uh, yeah, this is you know barring uh, barring me getting hit by a truck or something crazy happening. Um, the, there's going to be a lot of Love Crush Velvet music coming out, and I, and I think it's going to be really good Love Crush Velvet music. Mm-hmm. 